in John 10, verses 1 through 18, having before us the glorious privilege of considering the matchless glory of our Savior. There's no greater subject, no higher thought, no more glorious reality than that of our Lord Jesus Christ sent from the Father, directed by the Spirit to lay down his life for his sheep. You remember the context of John chapter 10 coming off of chapter 9 in which he healed the man born blind and has this rising tension from the Pharisees who believe they are the doorkeepers of the nation of Israel, that no one enters into a right relationship unless it be by them and through their keeping of their interpretation of the law. Jesus cuts out their legs from underneath them through the healing of the blind man, and he, the blind man himself, says, of course this man is the Messiah. Who else could heal a man born blind? Jesus follows up their statement in, at the end of chapter 9, asking, are we blind too? By speaking to them in a figure of speech, a, a metaphor, a parable, if you will, but more than a parable, a, a real-life thing that people would understand that has great, deep spiritual meaning. He speaks to them immediately in verse 1, words that cut through the unbelief of these false leaders, these false shepherds. But it also builds up the faith of the newly born-again man who has been healed. Jesus' words often accomplish a million things at once. Here we see explicitly they accomplish two things undeniably. He addresses the false faith of false shepherds gives them no argument left, makes known to them that they are the hired hands, the thieves seeking to kill, steal, and destroy, while also building up the tender faith of a man who's just entered into the kingdom of God. And in that, giving to all of the church of all time, one of the most precious texts of one of the most clear, uh, one of the clearest metaphors of our relationship to the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We dealt with the false shepherds a bit last week. We, again, this morning we'll see them in part, but really the focus decidedly shifts in verses 11 to 18 to speak of his, Jesus' relationship to the sheep as their good shepherd. You remember the kind of the layout of the text, verses one through five, Jesus gives us word picture, this figure of speech that they should understand. He, he's trying to speak plainly the truth to them. Verse six, they don't get it. John tells us they did not understand. So verses seven through 18, he comes back to it and he explains what he meant. More specifically, in verses seven through 10, he explains what he meant in verses one and two. And he says, I am the door of the sheep. No one comes into the sheepfold except through the door. No one knows the safety and the security and the provision of the shepherd lest they come through me, the door of the sheep. And then he explains the word picture, the, the middle part of it, verses 3 through 5, in verses 7 through 18, and he explains explicitly what it means that he is the good shepherd. That's the layout of the text. Let me read it for you, John 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. One of the most common descriptions in all of Scripture of our relationship to the Lord is that of this shepherd and sheep. One of the most loved Psalms, which I quoted already, has as its center, this picture of shepherd and sheep. But it could be relatively easy in our 21st century Western world to, to miss the impact of that metaphor. Maybe when you hear sheep, you're thinking of your daughter's cute stuffed animal that she must have next to her when you tuck her into bed at night. Or maybe you think of that, that cute, uh, fluffy uh, image of a sheep that hops over the fence as you're trying to fall asleep and you're counting them in your imagination. Or maybe when you hear shepherd, you're you're thinking of our cute elementary kids who were in front of us earlier in the Christmas program who get to wear a bathrobe and a hat and carry a wooden staff that's three times their size and act out fear as the narrator reads Luke 2. Maybe that's what you think of when you think shepherd and sheep. You, you know better. There's a lot more to this idea. It's, it's much less cute and much less cuddly to have Sheep who need a shepherd. Sheep, I'm told, are among the neediest of all livestock, needing the most detailed of care and the most consistent of direction. They're creatures of, of habit, and because of that, they also find themselves to be often stubborn, but also quickly intrigued and led away. They also are a fearful lot. They're easily spooked and jumpy, as it were. Not the most intelligent of creatures, I'm told. They, they need the wise superintendence of their owner at all times. The job of the shepherd, on the other hand, was, especially in Jesus' day, the lowliest of all jobs. It was reserved for those in the family who, who couldn't do the harder tasks. This is why David was out with the, the flocks while his brothers were at war. Well, David could do that. The rest of us must go and fight. It was for the, the most humble in the family to take care of the sheep. But it was not a job for wimps or for the faint of heart. It was full of hot days and cold nights. Danger at every corner from predators and from the difficulty of keeping the sheep well fed and well watered. As we see Jesus' words in John 10, the shepherd and the sheep develop this close connection of mutual knowledge and shared trust. These truths and, and a world more truth is in the background of what Jesus says to them, I am the good shepherd. This statement by Jesus is the, the second pillar of this text. The first pillar was the one we found in verse seven where he says, I am the door of the sheep. He explained that. We considered that last week. Now he says, I am the good shepherd. He says it in verse 11 and again in verse 14. All of these I am statements of John's gospel, seven total, these are numbers three and four in his gospel, are intended to communicate to us something about the amazing divinity and humanity of this man named Jesus. He's using something you're familiar with to, to help you grasp the, the fullness of his nature. His divine and his human nature combined in his one person. For he cannot be the door of the sheep if he is merely a son of Mary and Joseph. He cannot allow entrance into the sheepfold of the eternal kingdom of God if he is but a man. But he cannot 
allow for entrance into the sheepfold by the laying down of his life across the door, becoming the door if he is not a man, if he is only God. The same is true for that of good shepherd. He cannot be the good shepherd over God's elect sheep if he is not both God and man in one person. These are profound statements of our Lord's matchless glory. We will, we will get nowhere near scratching the surface in 40 minutes of, of the glory of Christ expressed in this text, but we'll give it a go. So much truth in, in John 10. I want to zero in on what we can learn about Jesus as the good shepherd. Let's stick with the main thing and make much of it. The main thing in this text is that Jesus is the good shepherd of the sheep. And I, I lay this before you with the hope that you yourself in your walk with the Lord grow in humble trust and deep worship that produces consistent obedience and patience with his sovereignty and love for all things that he loves and hate for all things that he hates. Jesus is the good shepherd, namely in this we must see the sacrificial love of the good shepherd. Being the good shepherd, we must notice the sacrificial love of the good shepherd immediately in verses 11 through 13. That's the, the statement that comes obviously right after verse 10 where Jesus contrasts himself with a thief who comes in only to steal and kill and destroy. And he says, but I come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. And then he immediately says, though I have broken that up, it is together, though he immediately then says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Where the thief comes in to take the life of the sheep for his own good, the shepherd comes in to give his life for the sheep so that they may have abundant life. This is the ABCs of the gospel. This is the good news for your soul. If you turn from your rebellion and unbelief and believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is, this is what has happened for you. The shepherd has come and given himself for his sheep. And he does that so that you may have abundant life. In keeping with the shepherding metaphor that obviously, that abundant life obviously means that they're well cared for they're abundantly blessed to be his sheep. We know clearly from Scripture, I haven't spent any time on this because I know you know it. This does not mean the abundance of, of physical possessions in life like prosperity gospel folks would like to sell you, literally sell you, pay me money so I can tell you this so I can have the abundant life I'm telling you you can have. That's not what Jesus is promising here. You know that. We know that from other texts. Romans 8, namely, that I prayed from, the, the, the psalmist says, and Paul quotes, we, we're being slain all day long. Life is hard as strangers and exiles in a wilderness land waiting for our true eternal home, entering into the true kingdom of God. We're longing for that and waiting for that. Until then, it's tough. But there's an abundance of life even now while we journey there that our good shepherd brings to us because he leads us in and out to fruit-filled pastures, green pastures, and still waters. Verse 10 can be true because Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Their abundant life is dependent upon his sacrificial life. And that is the clear meaning of that phrase, lays down his life. Jesus uses it in verse 11, again in verse 15, and then again in verse 17. It's a phrase unique to John's New Testament books. It's a phrase that always means someone laying down their life voluntarily and in a sacrificial way. So Peter in John 13 is arguing with his Lord, saying, I'll never leave you, I'll never abandon you. He says, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. That's a voluntary, sacrificial statement by Peter. I'll get in the way between you and whoever's coming after you. That's what he means, right? And I'll do that because I'm committed to you. Jesus answered him in John 13, 37, 38, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Later in that upper room discourse, our Lord said to all of his disciples in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Voluntary, sacrificial giving of self for the benefit of others. 1 John 3 and verse 16, a great gospel verse John the Apostle says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, speaking of Jesus, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, voluntary, sacrificial, giving of self for the blessing and benefit of someone we love. So Jesus, as the good shepherd of the sheep, is, is volunteering himself, his life for theirs. He's standing between them and eternal danger. He's stepping in the way and substituting himself for them, giving himself in death so that they may have life. Some would like to make this language in the New Testament mean that it's a, an exemplary kind of death, that he, he dies for us in the sense that he's, he's laying an illustration of what love looks like for us and letting us know how much he loves us. They're trying to avoid substitutionary language because they're offended by the idea of God the Son laying down his life substitutionarily under the curse of your sin. D.A. Carson says this about that. In no case does this suggest a death with merely exemplary significance. In each case, the death envisaged is on behalf of someone else. The shepherd does not die for his sheep to serve as, as an example, throwing himself off a cliff in a grotesque and futile display while bellowing, see how much I love you? No, the assumption is that the sheep are in mortal danger, that their defense, the shepherd loses his life, that by his death they are saved. That and that alone is what makes him the good shepherd. This is the sacrificial love of Jesus who says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. So we don't miss the point. Jesus counterbalances that truth with the, the self-love of the hired hands. These are those hired guns who are, are just there for the paycheck, looking for a job and found by the shepherd because he has other things to tend to. So he, he pays them to stand in his place while he goes and does other things. And they're given the keys to the fold and, and told to watch over the flock. They're pointed to the pasture and they're, they're given clear instructions about how to care for the sheep. They're, they're told where to avoid dangers along the way. But Jesus says clearly, they do not own the sheep, therefore they do not care. They simply do not care about the sheep. They are not their own sheep. So when they see the wolf coming, he says, they, they make some quick calculations. And it takes about 2.20 nanoseconds. Me die, they die, I'm out. Right? It's that simple because they don't own these sheep. Philip Keller has written a, a wonderful little book on the 23rd Psalm, the title of it, if you want to get it and read it, it's worth the read. It's called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. He's had much experience as a shepherd in career, and so he takes those insights and digests and passes on to us the meaning of Psalm 23. It's a faithful and helpful book. As one who owned sheep, he speaks of that ownership relationship this way. I recall quite clearly how in my first venture with sheep, the question of paying a price for my ewes was so terribly important. They belonged to me only by virtue of the fact that I paid hard cash for them. It was money earned by the blood and sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. And when I bought that first small flock, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with this day in mind. Because of this, I felt in a special way that they were in very truth a part of me and I a part of them. There was an intimate identity involved, which though not apparent on the surface to the casual observer, nonetheless made those 30 ewes exceedingly precious to me. But the day I bought them, I also realized that this was but the first stage in a long 
everlasting endeavor, which from then on I would, as their owner, have to continually lay down my life for them if they were to flourish and prosper. Sheep do not just take care of themselves, as some might suppose. They require, more than any other class of livestock, endless attention and meticulous care. You see, the indelible connection between Keller and his sheep, having worked hard to pay for them, he now is uniquely identified with them. He contrasts that with another account, another anecdote. He says, in memory, I can still see one of the sheep ranches in our district, which was operated by a tenant sheepman, a hired hand. He ought never to have been allowed to keep sheep. His stock were always thin, weak, and riddled with disease or parasites. Again and again, they would come and stand at the fence, staring blankly through the woven wire at the green, lush pastures which my flock enjoyed. Had they been able to speak, I am sure they would have said, oh, to be set free from this awful owner. You see, hired hands simply don't care because they don't own the sheep. Friend, maybe you're here this morning and you're like those sheep staring through a fence. You're, you're in a, a pasture land that is, is dark, decaying, and decrepit. You're, you're under the, the mastery of a shepherd over your soul that is ruining you and destroying you and will ultimately kill you. For the Apostle John says that the end of sin is death. And maybe you're, you're among us this morning because there's something inherent in, in your spiritual sense that, that there's, there's sheep who are well cared for. Their, their souls are in a better spot than mine. They have a, a life I don't have. They have a comfort and a peace I don't enjoy. And you, you might be standing at that fence this morning. And if you could speak, you would say, Somebody rescue me from this terrible master. And I say to you, there, there's a way. And his name is Jesus. He, he is the door out of that pasture into his. And he's secured that entrance through his very death for you. Taking all the awfulness of, of your current master and owner, sin, and all of its condemnation, and all of its curse upon himself, giving his life for you so that you can have abundant life in him. So don't leave today. Don't end this day still in that decrepit, run-down, awful pasture. Run with all you have to the Lord Jesus Christ and sprint through his door. Believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, be saved today. Be rescued from that master and enter into the joy of the good shepherd. This good shepherd cares for his sheep that he has made his own a great personal sacrifice. And you must know he's going to care for them with that same kind of sacrificial Love. The hired hand cares only about himself, which he can use to leverage the sheep for his own good. The stakes are obviously much higher and much greater when it comes to the spiritual flock for which Christ has laid down his life. We have the joy of knowing that Christ stepped between us and death, between us and sin between us and eternal condemnation under the righteous wrath of God so that we could be his sheep rescued by his life. This is why First Peter says we've been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the imperishable and precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As Paul says in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has given his life for you. It is through then this sacrificial love and most specifically it is through this most loving act that he gives life to you and to me.
Sacrificial love is so essential to our relationship with the Lord that it's easy to take for granted that you have been loved in this way. In fact, it is often in the the press of circumstances when you feel as though your shepherd has abandoned you or forgotten you or is maybe just mean-hearted and lets you writhe under the pain. That you must never forget that your shepherd hung on a cross for you. We must never move past Calvary. We must never fail to remember and bring to mind that love expressed on that cross. The sacrificial love is also crucial for the pattern it sets for leadership in Christ's church. Being absent in body, he's now set up an economy within his flock of which he's appointed under shepherds, those who are not themselves the good shepherd, but who've been given the task to oversee the flock of God. So Peter says in 1 Peter 5 that elders and overseers in the church are to shepherd the flock of God with the same kind of of self-sacrificial love that they see in the good shepherd. So to be a good shepherd in Christ's church, you must never move past the self-sacrificial love of the good shepherd for you and for his church. You must always be reminded and Always keep before you the the high price that was paid for these God's people. And you must then treat them with the same love that you have been shown by him. And yet so many pastors within the church today are merely hired hands. So many elders and bishops and pastors are hired hands there for the paycheck. Presiding over the flock with with presumed authority and and assumed power. Naming the name of Christ and speaking the words of Christ, but intending for their own good, not the good of the flock of God. This is why so many false teachings and vain philosophies of human reason have entered into the life of the church and have polluted and continue to pollute the sheep like parasites that feed off of a physical flock. This is why ravenous wolves have often found so much access to pick off one sheep at a time because these false shepherds, these hired hands, see the wolf coming and they do some quick mental math and they turn their eye and don't do their job. J.C. Ryle said of this, let it be noted that the great secret of a useful and Christ-like ministry is to love men's souls. The secret of a useful and Christ-like ministry is to love men's souls. He that is a minister merely to get a living or to have an honorable position is the hireling of these verses. The true pastor's first care is for his sheep. The false pastor's first thought is for himself. This is why, among many other such reasons, we believe as a church that God has placed a plurality of shepherds to serve the flock. As under-shepherds, they together share the responsibility and foster that accountability to love men's souls. One shepherd by himself, given power and authority and control over the flock, would easily become engulfed with his own conceit, his own self-concern. Would easily buy into his own press clippings that he deserves from the flock everything he thinks he deserves in life. But many pastors caring together for the flock with the, the posture of heart which sacrificially loves the sheep in keeping with Jesus' sacrificial love for them makes it difficult for any one of them to be in it for themselves. Flip with me quickly to Acts chapter 20. I want you to see this in living color in Acts 20 as Paul addresses the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem, taking the gift from the Macedonian churches to the needy Jerusalem church. He stops in Miletus, he calls his, his precious elders, his friends, his comrades in ministry, his brothers in arms, He says, come and meet me. I have something to say to you. 
And so he starts telling them in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You see how the the command of what they're supposed to do is rooted in the sacrifice of a shepherd who laid down his life for them. Do you see how the call to be careful and to carry out the ministry responsibilities of shepherds and overseers is rooted in blood shed by our Lord for them? He goes on, 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Do you see how Paul expects the elders, the shepherds, the pastors of his church to have the unending and unbending commitment to give themselves constantly to the care of the flock, bent upon the promise of our Lord, it is more blessed to give than to receive, willing, if they need to, to make their own tents, to provide for themselves with their own hands so that they can care for the flock and be entirely above reproach. You see how much shepherds are to love the flock for which Christ died. And do you see how this love is not to be in word? It's not to be in affectionate statements from the front. It is to be in loving, self-sacrificial actions from the back. Fulfilling the law of Christ as shepherds, caring for the sheep. This is the sacrificial love of the good shepherd that should be evidenced in every under-shepherd. Notice then with me the secure knowledge of the good shepherd. See the glory of our Lord in verses 14 and 15 in his secure Knowledge. Jesus says again, I am the good shepherd. When it's repeated, you know he's got more to say about it, more to add to that idea. He wants to fill in what he means by that statement some more. And so he goes on to say, There's a shared knowledge between me and my sheep. He says, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, just Before we dive in, and I read that to you, those are familiar words. Read it again for the first time. I know my sheep and my own know me just as I know my father and my father knows me. Therefore, I lay down my life for the sheep. A couple of questions going into this text. What does he mean that he knows the sheep and the sheep know him? And then what does he mean when he says, they know me and I know them just as the Father and I know each other? And then why, at the end of that statement, does he throw in, I've laid down my life for the sheep? Let's consider the first question together first. How is it that he knows the sheep and the sheep know him? Well, he knows the sheep so truly that he calls them by name. Verses 14 and 15 are the clearest expansion of verses three through five. That part of the word metaphor where he says that the the shepherd comes in and and he calls to the sheep and the sheep hear his voice and, and they know him. He calls them by name and he leads them out and he's brought out all his own, verse four, and he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. 
A stranger they will not follow, he says, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Verses 14 and 15, he's expanding on that. He's letting you know more about it. So let's think of those texts together. What does it mean for Jesus to know his sheep and his sheep to know him? Well, it means he knows the sheep so truly that he calls them by name. This is not some, some mass lot by which he says, those are my sheep, and never says more. No, he says in, in verse 3, I call them by name and lead them out. This is not a general knowledge of of his flock as a whole. It's a a thorough knowledge of each sheep individually. He does not just know you as part of the whole. He couldn't just say, yeah, yeah, they're, they're one of my sheep, I'm pretty sure. He knows your name. He's called you by name. More than that, Revelation 13 and verse 8 in a, a context about the Antichrist and, and his work in the world in those terrible days of the, of the Great Tribulation. We're given some insight into what this means. John tells us that your name has been written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb who was slain. But there's more. That it's been written there since before the foundation of the world. He had your name on his heart when he made all things through the power of his word. He had his name on your heart when he entered into Mary's womb, was born in Bethlehem, was raised in Nazareth, was baptized in Judea, taught on the hillside of Israel, entered into Jerusalem under faux cries of worship. He had your name on his heart when he stood before the Pharisees and the scribes and called out their false religion, knowing that it would ultimately lead to them accusing him of blasphemy and pushing him to the cross of Calvary, for which he was appointed to come. He had your name on his heart when he stood before the apostles in the upper room and taught them those glorious truths of what it means for you to be his and him to be yours. He had your name on his heart when he prayed the high priestly prayer of chapter 17. He had your name on his heart when he was betrayed and arrested outside the Garden of Gethsemane when they violently seized him and drug him to trial. He had your name on the heart when he endured six mockery trials of kangaroo justice. He had your name on his heart when he was nailed to a Roman cross. He had your name on his heart as blood dripped from his body, shed for you. He had his name on your heart as he cried to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had his, his, your name on his heart as he cried out, I thirst. He had his name, your name on his heart when he said, it is finished. The wrath is paid for. Life can be given. The threat is dealt with. My sheep can enter in. He had your name on his heart when he was sent from heaven back to his lifeless body early Sunday morning in power from above and divine glory infiltrated that lifeless tomb with the majesty of life from above, glorified, indestructible life. He had your name on his heart as he went forth and said to his apostles, I have been sent, so send I you. He had your name on his heart as he ascended to the right hand of the Father bearing your name in his wounds, forever interceding for you by his indestructible life, saying, I have cut a covenant of which they are the recipients of those blessings and they are forever mine. See my wounds. He has your name on his heart as he builds his church 
in this moment and in this place. He has good works appointed for you to do in his church for the progress of the gospel, for the glory of the shepherd, for the health of the flock. He knows you by name. That's what it means when he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. He also knows the sheep so fully that he leads them out and goes before them. He leads them out and he, he goes before them. He knows their name, he calls them, and then they, they go after him. Last week we learned that Jesus is the, the true shepherd of his people coming into the fold the right way, remember? And we're told that he leads his sheep then out of that fold, that he's entered in the right way. Verse 16, we're gonna learn that he is gonna have other sheep from other folds that he's gonna bring in. And he's going to have one flock and be one shepherd over one flock. We'll consider that more next week. Yes, we're having a third sermon on John 10. You'll be all right. The fold of verses 1 through 5 is the Jewish people under the Mosaic Covenant. Paul speaks of this in Galatians 3 when he says that the law has been their schoolmaster. It's kept them. It has not saved them protected them in a sense, it's prepared them, it's pointed them to Christ, but they've been captive under the law, they've been encased in this fold, until Paul says Christ came and they were justified by faith in him. And they were led out of that sheepfold by this glorious shepherd, liberated from the law and led out into the green pastures of his overabounding grace, his abundant life. Having been freed from the law and its condemnation of sin, now they're, they're led forth by Christ and they, they know that he is their shepherd and they have the fullest of confidence in him because they've experienced his shepherding. They know it's good. They know he's kind. They know he leads them to green pastures and still waters. And so they can say like David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The, the good shepherd knows what his sheep need. He goes before them and directs them to the right spot. He knows them fully in that he leads them out and goes before them. He also knows the sheep so completely that he leads them all out. At the beginning of verse four, you easily miss that phrase, but you must not. When he has brought out all his own. When he has brought out all his own. Friend, he leaves no one behind. To my shame as a parent, I have four children. It's not that many. That's not my shame. Follow the story. (laughs) Public speaking is hard to do. I have four children. That's not that many. Shouldn't be that hard to manage, right? To my shame, I have left one of them places before. Thinking I had them all. And I pretty much know their names, usually. Know where they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to be doing. And and I have four of them to take care of. Not four billion or whatever the number is in our Lord's fold. He doesn't miss them by accident. He doesn't miss them on purpose. He doesn't leave the troublemaker behind because he's ready to move on with life. He doesn't forget the straggler. He doesn't miss the one who slept in too long got mixed in, sniffing something else in another flock. He doesn't abandon one of his sheep because they're, they're prone to wander. He's tired of constantly shooing them back into the way. No, these are his sheep. He purchased them with his own blood. He will lead them all out. Brother, sister, take so much comfort here. He will lead you safely home. He has not forgot you. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He is not so tired of you that he has moved on to more pliable sheep. 
He loves you and has given his life for you. Therefore, he will never leave you and never forsake you. He will never stop loving you. He will never turn you over to your own devices simply because he's tired of your shenanigans. He will love you to the end and deliver you safely home. Also notice that this knowledge is that of his sheep knowing him so truly that they will only follow him. They know his voice, they only follow his voice. They've experienced his joy and his care, they they won't follow another because of it. And this beloved is the true mark of a sheep. We'll see that later in verses 25 through 27 of this text where he says to the Pharisees, you're not of my sheep because you don't listen to my voice. Meaning there is a sure mark of Christ's true sheep. They hear his voice and they heed his voice. They believe and they follow. They run after Christ. They can tell when something isn't quite right in an under-shepherd who claims to be representing him but who is only there for their own ends. They have a a gospel spidey sense, if you will. They just kind of know something's off. This guy's talking, but he's not speaking in the words of Christ with the voice of Christ. And they also know when Christ is speaking, they hear and they follow. It's in these ways that the good shepherd knows his sheep and that the sheep know him. But Jesus quickly, he says more, of, more than that in verse 15, doesn't he? He says that this knowledge is like the knowledge shared between heavenly father and incarnate son. And we are treading here where angels dare not walk. But Christ must want us to know something because he said it. What does this mean for us? With fear and trepidation, let me take a stab. What does it mean that, that we know the shepherd just as the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father. How does that divine knowledge between Father and Son help us understand shared knowledge between shepherd and sheep? Consider three truths. The first is that it is actual, not perceived. It is actual, not perceived. And that is what's at stake in John's Gospel. Jesus comes saying, I am the one sent from the Father to you. And they are saying, no, you are not. He's the one who's come saying, I know the Father. And I'm come telling you the words that only the Father wants me to tell you, I tell you. And they say, no, you're not. And he says, my sheep will hear my voice and they'll know that I'm true. It's it's an actual knowledge, not a perceived or professed knowledge. Jesus actually knows the Father. And he speaks on his behalf. John 8, verse 28, Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. It's actual knowledge, not perceived. It's also relational, not clinical. It is relational, not clinical. It's a knowledge that that is not just a, a factual knowledge. A knowledge of what is true of one another where you read their bio and you, you know them. I, I know John Adams because I read a 600-page 600 tome, 600 tome bio of him. I don't know John Adams, relationally. Jesus knows the Father in a depth of relationship that is incomprehensible. John 8, verse 29, he goes on to say, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This is a knowledge that goes beyond facts and clinical studies. It's a knowledge of relationship between shepherd and sheep, and it is close, not distant. It is close, not not distant. So it's actual, not perceived. It's relational, not clinical, and it is close, not distant. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's a close knowledge, not distant. 
so close that your eternal assurance of salvation is staked upon it. I and the Father are one. Is this not then true of shepherd and sheep and sheep and shepherd? It's a knowledge that is actual, not perceived. If you just know clinical facts about Jesus because you read his bio, because you read the Gospels, you, you know it's true about him, but you don't know him, you're not his sheep. It's relational, not clinical. It's close and not distant. It's so close that when Paul was persecuting the church in the book of Acts and he's accosted by Jesus as he goes to do more damage. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute the church? Why do you persecute me? This is how close the connection is between shepherd and sheep. Damage done to the flock is damage done to the shepherd. Attack on the flock is attack on the shepherd. Having given his life for them, he will intervene on their behalf and care for them. Beloved, behold your God. This Jesus is your good shepherd. May you take great comfort in truly knowing him. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us. Thank you for the mercy of Christ won for us by his sacrifice on our behalf. Help us to walk this life this week confident in him, trusting him humbly, obeying him thoroughly. And help us to know the closeness of this relationship as shepherd to sheep. We trust that to you and we ask for your help in this way. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Because of the lateness of the hour, we will not have our closing hymn. Sorry, Pastor Larry. We will close simply by considering the glory of our resurrected shepherd of the sheep. As you go your way and you hear the musicians play and you think, I want you to think through what does this matter to me today? How does this apply to my heart? What's gonna change this week because you've heard Jesus is your good shepherd? I invite you to return tonight as you have opportunity to worship with us and finish out the Lord's Day together. I ask you to especially be praying for our brother Calvin as he prepares to preach the word to us uh, from Ephesians 4 and come and then encourage him as he handles the text for us and God uses him to encourage our faith. That's at six o'clock tonight. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.